Hi, I'm Xavier McFarlane, and welcome to the Catholic City Podcast from the Mary Foundation. Today's episode features Roy Schumann, who some call a modern-day St. Paul. In one of the most astounding conversion stories of our time, Schumann, a former atheist, shares how God directly intervened in his life to change everything. After listening to his story, you will never see the world in the same way again. But first, if you ever considered becoming a Catholic or are a Catholic seeking to deepen your relationship with Christ, please visit us at catholiccity.com to order our Catholic scapulars, books, booklets, relic prayer medals, and best-selling novels by Bud McFarlane. Sign up for Bud's twice-a-month Catholic City email message, where he's been sharing profound insights, sage advice, and crazy stories for over 25 years. We are also the world's largest distributor of the Purple Scapular, given by Mary to the approved French mystic Marie-Julie Jehenny in the late 1800s. You can learn more at our website, catholiccity.com, which is the online home of the Mary Foundation. Since the dawn of the internet, we've been a world leader in delivering proven, free, or low-cost tools for evangelization right to your door. And now, let's begin. Hi, thank you all for coming, and I'm, I'm very, very happy to be here. It's a, it's a great pleasure and privilege to share my witness testimony and also talk about the way in which the Catholic Church is actually the continuation of Judaism. I don't want to get ahead of myself and, and launch in there. So anyway, my intention is this evening, my talk will revolve around my witness testimony of the experiences I had that led me from being a very uh, smug Jewish Harvard Business School professor to being what, whatever it is I am now, but it's certainly an enthusiastic Catholic. And so it'll revolve around my witness testimony. Tomorrow's talk will revolve around theology in some sense, the role of Judaism in salvation history, and the, really the theological underpinnings, understanding of how the Catholic Church is actually post-Messianic Judaism, and Judaism is pre-Messianic Catholicism, that they're not really two religions at all. They're one religion divided into two phases, the first phase being to prepare for the incarnation of the second person of the Most Holy Trinity as a man which is what Judaism, the heart of Judaism, was to prepare for the Incarnation, with the intention always being that when that greatest event that literally ever happened in creation, the Incarnation of God as man, took place, that special relationship between God and the Jews, which had been given to them to enable that event to take place, would be infinitely expanded and extended to all of mankind through faith in Jesus and the sacraments of the Catholic Church. So it isn't really discontinuous. This is one of the things that Father was alluding to. That's why I don't consider myself a convert, like I went from one religion to another religion. I just went from being a Jew who was wrong about who Jesus was to a Jew who was right about who Jesus was. And if Jews are supposed to be right about everything, that should make me more Jewish than ever. <laughs> and certainly, why should I stop being Jewish by going from being a Jew who didn't follow the Jewish Messiah to being a Jew who did follow the Jewish Messiah. Since Jesus was the Jewish Messiah, be, you know, being a Jewish follower of the Jewish Messiah shouldn't make me disqualified from being Jewish. So anyway, but the underlying theology of all of that I'll talk about tomorrow night. And then on Friday, I will share the stories of some other Jews who very gratefully entered the Catholic Church and who also share this perspective and share some of their reflections on the riches of the Catholic Church, because the only possible advantage there could be for having been born and raised not Catholic is that the only disadvantage of being a cradle Catholic is that sometimes it's hard to be aware of what you have in the Catholic Church, because you always had it. Whereas when you come in from the outside, it can be in sharper contrast, and it can be easier to really see the incredible 
gift of the Catholic Church. And in fact, that it is, it is the greatest gift that God ever made, gave mankind. It's through no merit of your own, I don't want to hurt your feelings, but through no merit of your own that you were born and raised Catholics. It is just a tremendous gift of divine providence that you have, and that you have in part to share with others, to share the wealth with them. So I'll, I'll be reflecting on that a little bit on Friday. But let me just start at the beginning. I mentioned I was born and raised Jewish. My parents are both German-Jewish Holocaust refugees. They were both born and raised in Germany. My father left Germany shortly after Hitler came to power. There was a period when Hitler was actually trying to get the Jews to leave as long as they left everything behind. And he left as a young man at that point and, and made it to the United States. My mother's family was less fortunate. They fled to France, but France soon fell under the Third Reich. And my mother was actually arrested by the Gestapo and, and put on a train to a concentration camp but managed to escape and make it to the United States eventually, where she met my father and they married. I was raised outside of New York City. My whole world growing up was Jewish. In those days, there was less mixing between the Jewish community and the non-Jewish community. In fact, frankly, there wasn't as much ability to mix. The town that my parents settled in in northern Jersey was the only town in the area that allowed Jews to buy houses there and so forth. So there was some enforced separation still in those days. And so all of my parents' friends were Jewish. All of my friends were Jewish. I went to Jewish religious education all the way from the beginning of school and first grade until university alongside secular education. And in the summer, uh, actually my late high school years, I became even more devoutly Jewish. And I became a follower of a Hasidic rabbi. You know the Hasids, the, the Jews with the long ear curls and the fur-brimmed black, fur black hats and so forth. And I kind of became a disciple of his. And I spent the summer between high school and college actually living with him and traveling with him in Israel in his entourage. And I toyed with the idea, in fact, of not coming back to the United States and beginning university that fall but staying in Israel and entering the closest thing that Judaism has to religious life, which is a life of study and prayer in a yeshiva in Jerusalem. But I didn't. I came back to the United States, and I began university that fall. It was MIT. And in my university years is when I really lost my Jewish faith. And by the time I left university, I was essentially atheist. I lost my faith at college under two influences. One was the pseudoscientific worldview that somehow religion is a medieval superstition that man made up to give him answers before he had science, which provides him with real answers to everything. And everything that science doesn't have the answer to today, it will in five years. I call that a pseudoscientific worldview. In fact, it's the opposite of genuine science because the heart of science is you start with the evidence, you start with the data, and you develop a theory that explains the data. And if it successfully explains the data, you can hold on to the theory. And if not, you have to discard that theory and find another one that can explain the evidence, that can explain the data. And in fact, all of the evidence is for the truths of the Catholic faith. There's lots and lots of scientific evidence that supports the Catholic faith. You only have to think of, even if you don't believe the story of Our Lady of Guadalupe, you have the fact of the tilma, right, of, of Juan Diego's tilma, which is made of, out of cactus cloth that has a 20 or 30 year life. It dates from the early 16th century. It's been around for 500 years. There is no paint on it that provides the image. There's no 
materialistic explanation for the image on the tomb of Guadalupe, just like there's no materialistic explanation for the Shroud of Turin. The image on the Shroud of Turin, which is also has no pigmentation, no paint, somehow miraculously produced. And even today, with all of uh, today's technology, science couldn't counterfeit the Shroud of Turin. They'd be totally helpless. You have the miracle at Fatima, where the sun was seen to spin in the sky and crash to earth, seen by 70 to 100,000 witnesses, including atheists and skeptics and communists who had just come there to make fun of the ignorant peasants who thought a miracle would happen, but they saw it nonetheless, and so forth and so on. There's lots and lots of documented, materialistic, scientific evidence for the truths of the Catholic faith that materialism has no explanation for. So if one were to be true to the scientific attitude, one would have to throw away the materialistic hypothesis or, or theory or whatever in favor of a belief in God and, in fact, a, a belief in a lot of aspects of Catholicism. Uh, G.K. Chesterton has a very appropriate quote. I think many of you have heard of G.K. Chesterton. He was a British Christian writer of the first half of the 20th century. And he wrote, rightly or wrongly, those who believe in miracles believe in them on the basis of the evidence. Rightly or wrongly, those who disbelieve in miracles refuse to believe in them on the basis of faith, right? So it's exactly the opposite of this um, attitude that was, was inculcated in me at MIT, but I didn't know that at the time, and I actually bought that materialistic worldview. So by the time I got out of there, I was essentially atheist. I went on to Harvard Business School. I did well enough there that I was invited upon graduation to join the faculty of Harvard Business School as a professor of marketing. So I found myself at the ripe old age of 29, a newly minted professor of marketing at Harvard Business School. And that's really where my witness testimony begins, because what had been going on is that all my life since I was a small child, I felt there has to be a real meaning and purpose to life. And someday when I'm older, I'll come to know the real meaning and purpose to life. And as a child, I thought that would come from entering into a personal relationship with God, which I honestly thought would happen at my bar mitzvah. The bar mitzvah is like the Jewish version of Catholic confirmation. When the child is 13, there's a ceremony in the synagogue where he reads from the Torah for the first time. He enters into religious adulthood. And I honestly thought that out of my bar mitzvah, the veil would drop and I would enter into a personal relationship with God. And when that didn't happen, it was actually one of the saddest days of my childhood. But then pretty soon, I decided that the real meaning and purpose of life would come when I got a driver's license or when I left home or when I got a girlfriend or when I began MIT or if I got into Harvard Business School or when I began my career and so forth. But here I was already far more successful in a secular career than I ever expected to be, being a professor at Harvard Business School. But life still had no meaning or purpose. But the difference was at this point that now there was nothing more I could look forward to in the future that I might imagine might give my life meaning and purpose because there was no other greater success out there that I could imagine would, would give my life the meaning it didn't have. So I actually fell into the uh, deepest despair of my life at that point, kind of existential despair. Life had no meaning. We we're just a chemical accident. Lightning hit an amino acid soup five billion years ago, and somehow we sprang out of it, and, and we live for 80 or 90 or 100 years, and then we die, and that's it, and just, just no meaning or purpose to anything. And it was in that despair that I received the single most spectacular grace of my life. I was 
I was walking early one morning in a beautiful spot of nature. At the time, I lived in Cambridge, Massachusetts, and uh, this happened on Cape Cod. Cape Cod, and well, some of you, I'm sure, know of it. But it's a, a, a lot of it is national seashore. It's a beautiful little uh, spit of land that sticks out into the Atlantic Ocean with a lot of sand dunes and, and pine woods and so forth. And I was just alone in a nature preserve there, walking in the low pine woods behind the sand dunes early one morning, lost in my thoughts, long since having given up on any idea of God, when from one moment to the next, the veil between earth and heaven disappeared, and I found myself in the presence of God, very knowingly in the presence of God, seeing my life as I would see it after I died and was looking back over my life in the presence of God. And I saw everything and I understood everything in the way I would in the presence of God after death. I saw, I saw that my two greatest regrets after I died would be, number one, all of the time and energy I had wasted worrying about not being loved when every moment of my existence I was held in an ocean of love greater than I ever imagined could exist coming from an all-knowing, all-loving God. And the other great regret would be every hour that I had wasted doing nothing of value in the eyes of heaven. I saw that it was all true, that we live forever, that every action has a moral content that is observed and recorded and weighed in the balance and recorded for all eternity, that every right decision we make, every right moral action that we make will very literally be benefiting us for all eternity. And every loss opportunity, every moment in which we don't do something that we could do that's a value in the eyes of heaven would be a loss opportunity for all eternity. I saw how wrong I had been all my life. I had kind of been living my life looking in the rearview mirror, saying to myself, if only that hadn't happened to me, then I would be happy today. Or if only that hadn't happened to me, then I would be happy today. And that nothing could be further from the truth, that everything that had ever happened to me had been the most perfect thing that could have been arranged coming from the hands of an all-knowing, all-loving God, not only including those things that had caused the most suffering at the time, that I had thought of as the greatest disasters at the time, but especially those things that had caused the most suffering at the time. I saw, and this was the, by far the most astounding single aspect of this experience, the most moving single aspect, I saw that not only had this God the God who created, not only created all of all that exists, but created existence itself, been watching over me every moment of my life since conception and controlling everything that happened to me at every moment to be the most perfect thing that could happen to me, but that he had known how I was feeling at every moment and cared about how I was feeling at every moment to the point that in a very real way, he was made happy by everything that made me happy and was made sad by everything that made me sad, and he had been watching over me and caring about me every moment of my existence as though I were the only creature he had ever created, as though I was the purpose of all of, all of creation. And to come into that awareness, this had nothing to do with my understanding of God being Jewish growing up. Just to come into that awareness was the most earth-shattering aspect of this experience. At the time that this happened, you know, I, all my life growing I mean, I did not know growing up what cradle Catholics know just from the penny catechism growing up. So this was all entirely new to me. I didn't even know this in theory. The picture of God that I had from Judaism 
was the picture of God that emerges from the Old Testament. Now, I know that it's the same God, but in all honesty, if you read the Old Testament, the picture of God that emerges is of a God far more distant and severe and judgmental than this God was. And in fact, God in the days of the Old Testament didn't deal with ordinary people, didn't deal with the hoi polloi, but he only spoke to the people through the priests and prophets. In fact, there's a prophecy, I believe it's in the book of Joel, it's repeated in the book of Acts, where the Lord says, the day will come when you won't have to run to these people and ask them, tell me about God, tell me about God, tell me about God, because I'll make myself known to the lowliest manservant and maidservant. That's the God we have now. That is the revelation of God and the relationship between God and man that came about through Christ. But it wasn't there in the days of the Old Testament. So I could not put together this this. God who was showing himself to me with the way I had thought of God from Judaism. I saw how foolish I had been to think that life has no meaning and purpose. In fact, every moment has this infinite depth of meaning because it has the potential for an action with a moral content which matters to heaven and which matters to us for all eternity. Now, at the time, I was a Harvard Business School marketing professor, so I have some excuse for having been entirely selfish because that's really a science of selfishness, right? And that's what Harvard Business School is all about. And everything was net present value and maximizing returns and all of that. And during this experience, I saw that not only all my life had I been selfish, and I didn't even during this experience realize that I had been wrong to be selfish all my life. But what I saw during this experience was not only had I been selfish all my life, But I had not only been selfish, but I had been stupid and selfish because I had been putting all of my time and energy into things which wouldn't be doing me any good at all, even 100 years from now after I'm dead. And if I want to be smart and selfish, the only thing that made sense was to try to be as great a saint as possible and build up as much treasure in heaven as possible, right? So the picture that I had at the time was as though I had spent all my life striving to accumulate this big pile of brightly colored monopoly money when there was this huge pile of solid gold coins right next to it that I had been ignoring, which would be treasure in heaven. I saw, just trying to to think of what I should talk about, while this experience was happening, I was still walking during this experience. I still saw the physical world around me, but behind, it's like the physical world had become this uh, semi-transparent veil. I don't know if you've ever had this experience, but sometimes if you go to the theater, I know I've had this when I go to the ballet, sometimes you'll be there, you'll be in the theater, the house lights will be on, there'll be a curtain in front of the stage, and you just see the front of the curtain. And then the house lights will go down, they'll shine spotlights on the front of the curtain, you'll still just see the curtain. And then they'll dim the spotlights on the front of the curtain, and they'll raise the stage lights behind the curtain, and all of a sudden this curtain becomes almost transparent, and you see the actors on the stage, or you see the dancers on the stage, and that's what this was like. It was like, I still saw the physical world around me, but it had become almost transparent and inconsequential, and behind it I saw the spiritual world, which was really the solid thing and the real thing and the thing that mattered. And while this was happening, I wasn't surprised that I could see the spiritual world behind the physical world. The only thing that surprised me was that I could ever have been blind to it and not seen it because it was so much more real and more solid and more substantial than this physical world. And it never occurred to me that I could ever become blind to it again. So I was still walking, and so I prayed as I walked, because of course by now I knew that the meaning and purpose of my life 
was to worship and serve my Lord and Master and God, who was revealing himself to me and who who had watched over me with such tender, loving care and so forth. And so I prayed, let me know your name so I know what religion to worship and serve you properly. I don't mind if you're Buddha and I have to become a Buddhist. I don't mind if you're Krishna and I have to become Hindu. I don't mind if you're Apollo and I have to become a Roman pagan, as long as you're not Christ and I have to become Christian. <laughs> and I very literally prayed that, and I think that some of you may understand where that was coming from, but you know, it's the attitude that I had grown up with that I almost got with my mother's milk, that Christianity was the great enemy of the Jews, that it was the cause of all of the persecution of the Jews for the last 2,000 years, and so forth. And anyway, he respected that prayer, and he didn't reveal his name to me, and obviously I wasn't ready to hear it, or I wouldn't have said it. But I went back home. The, the, the state of awareness, the state of consciousness, uh, slowly faded. It faded when I started running across other people. The morning was was going on, of course, and as it got later, some other, you know, my paths would cross with other people and so forth. And each time I, I crossed the paths with another person, like my state of consciousness, you know, would, would drop a notch. And so the, the state of awareness faded slowly. But I went back home uh, to Cambridge, uh, happy for the first time since childhood. I knew it was all true. I knew we lived forever. I knew there was never any reason to be anxious about anything. I knew that there was this infinite meaning and purpose to life, and I, I basically just immediately transformed my Harvard Business School selfishness into a kind of pseudo-Catholic selfishness of wanting to amass as much treasure in heaven as possible and do everything I could to worship and serve my Lord and Master and God who had revealed himself to me. I instantly lost interest, by the way, in teaching Harvard MBAs how to make a little more money, and over the course of the next few years, I was no longer quite as welcome at Harvard Business School as I had been. So I, I got back home, happy since for the first time since childhood, walking on air. You guys don't know, I hope you don't know, because you grew up Catholic, but, you know, it's, it's hard to even imagine what it's like to really believe that life has no meaning or purpose, that we live for 70 or 80 years, we die, and that's it. And that's, what, that's the situation almost everyone else out there is in. It's just, I mean, compared to that, I had to be walking on air. Compared to that, I mean, it's like, I, 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 I can't even put, I can't put it in words, but nothing else mattered. And as a matter of fact, nothing else does matter, by the way. I'll tell you a secret. We live forever. We are going to live for all eternity. A hundred million years from now won't be a drop in the bucket. That is true. What that hundred million years or a hundred billion years or all eternity is going to be like is going to be fixed in concrete at the moment we die. It is going to be determined by how we spend this very short period on Earth, this 60 or 70 or 80 or 100 or maybe 110 years on Earth. Blink of an eye, but what we do in that 100 years is going to define our eternity. It is going to define our state for more than hundreds and millions of years. And, you know, please God, we all make it to heaven but even if we all make it to heaven, our enjoyment of heaven is going to be perfect relative to ourselves, but our enjoyment of heaven is not going to be equal with everyone else in heaven. Everyone in heaven has a different degree of glory. And I just came across yesterday a beautiful quote from St. Faustina from her diary, which I forgot again to bring tonight. You know St. Faustina's diary? She, she lived, uh, she was a Polish nun. Uh, she had uh, a lot of... Um, visions of, the, of Jesus who spoke to her. 
And in one of, in one of her diary entries, she's, she thanks Jesus for having shown her the, the different degrees of glory of the saints in heaven. And she said, you know, thank you, Jesus, for showing this to me. Um, I, I now understand I would undergo all of the sufferings of all of the martyrs in history combined in order to earn one more degree of glory in heaven. Okay, I mean, so I, I'm, <laughs> I, I'm, I'm still showing the selfishness, right? But it's not entirely bad. It doesn't make any sense to really trade anything that's going to benefit us for all eternity for anything that's going to benefit us for the next 20 or 30 years at most. It just, it's very bad business. It's a very bad net present value calculation. Take it from a Harvard Business School professor. So anyway, all I want to do is pursue this experience and know who this God was and know how to follow him. I didn't think he was Christ. I was still anti-Christian at the time. So all I could do, well, I did one thing. As soon as I got back home, I wanted to find a mystic to talk to because I, here I had a, just had this mystical experience. I didn't even know mystical experiences existed at the time that this happened. And so I just wanted to find a mystic to talk to who I thought could shed some light on this and tell me who this God was. So I found this self-styled mystic. He was actually a fallen away Catholic. I made an appointment to see him, so hoping he could shed some light on this. And so I went over to his apartment one evening and he led me on all kinds of silly wrong paths. He was into all kinds of new age stuff and gave me all kinds of, you know, silly new age books to read. But one good thing happened when I was in his apartment, which was at one point he went in the kitchen to make us a cup of tea and left me alone in the living room. And on his coffee table, he had this big coffee table picture book called something like the 100 Greatest Miracles of Modern Times. And I just leafed through the book while I was waiting for him to come back with the tea. And my eyes fell on a page dedicated to the miracle of Fatima. So when he came back with the tea, I point to that page and I say to him, uh, did this really happen? And he says, oh, yes. And so my next question was, has anyone else ever heard of it? Here I had spent 23 years in school. No one had ever told me about the miracle of Fatima. So then he said, oh, yeah, every Catholic knows about it. So then I asked him, has anything else been written about it? And he said, oh, yeah, just go to the public library. You'll find a dozen books on Fatima. Well, my initial reaction was to be filled with furious indignation. I felt, how could they have kept this secret from me? I felt my whole life would have been different if I had known that miracles still happen. All my time growing up in Jewish religious education, I kept pestering the teachers, asking them, why did God used to perform miracles in the days of the Old Testament and no longer does? And they never had an answer. I felt, and I know my life would have been different had I known that miracles still happen. And so, I mean, I think that we are living in this pseudoscientific age, as I said, everybody wants proofs to believe, everybody wants something, you know, some kind of scientific evidence before they accept something. God has given us in our day a particular wealth of scientific evidence supporting the faith of the Catholic, uh, the truth of the Catholic faith, including things like the miracle of Fatima, as I said, seen by over 70,000 people, things like the Shroud of Turin, things like the Marian apparitions, things like the Our Lady of Guadalupe and the Tilma, things like the medical miracles at Lourdes, all of which I, there, there is, there is real, what really qualifies as scientific evidence supporting the truths of the faith. And I'm not here, you know, to yell at cradle Catholics or beat up on you, but the one thing that I think one could beat up on cradle Catholics a little bit about is not sharing the faith enough. 
Obviously, the spirit of the world doesn't want you to share the faith. The spirit of the world, i.e. the devil, has really only one interest, which is keeping people away from God and keeping people away from the faith. And the lie that he's spreading today is, okay, this may be fine for you, but you have no right to impose it on others. You know, you don't want to make them feel bad. You don't want to act triumphalistic. I mean, it's an embarrassing situation to have the truth that everybody else wants to have and thinks they have and for you to really have it and for them to not have it. I grant that's embarrassing, but it's no excuse for not sharing it because you have what everybody else in the world is dying for. And all you have to do is go out on the sidewalk and look at the people covered with tattoos from neck to ankles or look at the people drugged out on the sidewalk or just in this kind of normal daily despair of dragging themselves to work and dragging themselves home and so forth. The only people who have any ability to genuinely be happy and at peace in the, in the world today are people in, in right relationship with God, and that really does mean Catholics in a state of grace. And we have all of the truths, we have all of the answers to the things that torture everybody else. What's the meaning of life? What happens after we die? Why is there suffering? That, by the way, which I'll talk about more in a later talk, the, the question, if there's a, if there's a good, all-powerful God, why is there so much suffering? That has everybody else in the world in despair. And only the Catholic faith, and not even the other Christian denominations, has the answer, and really has the answer, to the mystery of suffering, and the fact that the existence of suffering does not disprove God, and does not, not only does not remove the meaning of our lives, but actually gives our lives the ultimate meaning, right? I mean, there's, uh, Padre Pio used to say, if we knew the true value of suffering, we would never pray for anything else. And these are things that you know as uh, Catholics and as kind of somewhat in-touch Catholics. And I was in despair, even being a Harvard Business School marketing professor, I was in despair, in some sense considering suicide, just because of the meaningless and pointlessness of life. I didn't mean to mention this, but I actually have a weekly radio program that is on Saturdays from 3 to 4. And I just had, last this coming Saturday, I have an interview with a Buddhist that I met, a young Buddhist man, who similarly was considering suicide just out of the uh, lovelessness and meaninglessness of life when he had a, a revelation of Christ. And he's now an, also an extremely enthusiastic Catholic and so forth. So anyway, don't, don't, don't keep it secret and don't think that you're not, the greatest favor you can ever do to anybody is to share your faith with them. And you don't have to beat them over the head with it, and you don't have to be telling them, and I know that you wouldn't tell them, you know, you're wrong and I'm right. All you have to do is let them know what you have, what you subjectively experience from your faith. The consolation you get from receiving communion, the consolation you get from Eucharistic adoration, the, the feeling of peace you get from praying the rosary, your sense of um, communion with the Blessed Virgin Mary and her love and how that gives you peace, the reason why you're peaceful in the presence of bad news, of a bad medical report, of the death of someone you love, because you understand what waits for you and you understand the meaning of life, you understand God's love. Just If you just let them know what you experience from the Catholic faith, whether they admit it or not, and they probably won't admit it, they will want what you have, and it'll plant a seed. It may take 10 or 20 or 30 years to germinate, but it will plant a seed which won't go away and which might result in them actually coming into right relationship with God. And it actually might make the difference, at least in some case, of the difference between them being saved or them being lost forever. 
You know the parable of Divas, of the rich man and Lazarus. You all know the story. The rich man, who's usually called Divas, who feasted at his table and had food overflowing and more food than he knew what to do with and the, the food rolling off the edges of his table. And Lazarus, the poor man, the beggar, who was starving to death outside of his door. And Divas would not share any of his excess food even with this beggar. And so when they both died, Lazarus, the beggar, went to the bosom of Abraham and the rich man was lost. And usually that, that parable is thought of in terms of the, the riches of this world, and that's perfectly appropriate, but it may be even more appropriate to think of it in terms of spiritual riches, and in particular the riches of your faith, the riches of the Catholic Church, because a Catholic in the state of grace really is that rich man feasting at this tremendous banquet table day after day after day, and everybody else really is that starving beggar outside the door with the dog licking his wounds, dying and maybe even being lost for not having what you have. And we're all going to be called to account someday. We're all going to die. We're all going to be in the presence of Jesus, seeing our life like uh, unfold before us, you know, like a movie, reviewing our lives. And we'll see incident after incident after incident. And the one incident that I get, none of us want to see is where Jesus shows us. Do you remember when you were on that airplane and, and you started to say your rosary, but you were afraid the guy next to you would think you're nuts, so you hid it under your coat? I, I can say this because I did this, actually. You hid, this under, hid it under your coat so that he wouldn't notice. Well, you were the one person I sent to him to start a conversation which would have put him on the right path, and you were afraid of being embarrassed, and as a result, he was lost. And we don't, we don't want to see that when we review our lives in the presence of Jesus. We don't know, but there is no, nothing, I mean, I, I, this doesn't even have to be said, but there's nothing we could possibly do in our lives which would be of as much value to God, as much value to Jesus, as influencing somebody so they end up in heaven instead of in hell. We're not going to do that if we're afraid of what people think of us. We're not going to do that if we listen to that voice whispering in our ear, saying, oh, no, 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 you don't want to say that to them. You might offend them. You might make them feel bad. And I'm saying this also as a Jew because the people are afraid of being anti-Semitic. Well, there is no greater anti-Semitism than refusing to evangelize the Jews, not sharing the Jewish Messiah, Jesus, the greatest gift that ever came to mankind, which came to the rest of the world through the Jews to withhold him from the Jews by refusing to evangelize the Jews or refusing to share the faith with the Jews. And this is something, this is why I do what I do, is because, of course, the Jewish community is always up in arms, saying, how can you do this? You know, didn't you do enough with the Holocaust? How can you have any, you know, missionary activity among the Jews or anything? And I'm allowed to do it because they can't accuse me of being anti-Semitic. So anyway, but this was all a big digression. Where on earth was I? Oh yeah, I was at this guy's apartment seeing the miracle of Fatima. So anyway, so I leave his apartment with all this uh, unhealthy stuff, but with the miracle of Fatima in the back of my head. And then what I was doing after that first experience was every night before going to sleep, I would say a short prayer that I had made up to know the name of my Lord and Master and God who had revealed himself to me in that first experience. And a year to the day after that first experience, and I know that it was a year to the day because I remember praying a prayer of thanksgiving before going to sleep for what had happened a year earlier. I went to sleep, and I thought I was woken by hand on my shoulder. I now know, I now understand that my uh, body was still asleep in bed, and if there was a camera in the room, it would have shown me sleeping in bed. 
but I experienced it as though I was awakened, and my memory represents it as though I was awake. So I can only describe it as I experienced it, which was that I was woken up by a hand on my shoulder and led to a room and left alone with the most beautiful young woman I could ever imagine. And I knew without being told that it was the Blessed Virgin Mary. And just to be in her presence, just to feel the purity and the intensity of the love that flowed from her was to be in a state of ecstasy greater than I ever imagined could exist. As uh, beautiful as she was to look at, and as moving as that was, even more powerfully affecting was the sound of her voice, the beauty of her voice, which uh, carried the essence of music, whatever makes music, music. And it just flowed through me, carrying this essence of music and pure love, and it just lifted my soul up to the state of ecstasy. When I found myself in her presence, all I wanted to do was throw myself on my knees and somehow honor her appropriately. The first thing she said to me was she offered to answer any questions that I might have for her. The first thought that crossed my mind was to ask her to teach me the Hail Mary because I just wanted to honor her somehow appropriately. But I was too proud to admit that I didn't know it, so instead, as a kind of indirect way of getting her to teach it to me, I asked her what her favorite prayer to her was. Now, her initial response was somewhat coy. It was, I love all prayers to me. But I was a little bit pushy. Maybe that's because I'm a New York Jew and maybe not. But I said, but you must love some prayers to you more than others. And she relented and she recited a prayer. But it was in Portuguese and I didn't know any Portuguese. So all I could do was make the effort to remember the first few syllables phonetically. And the next morning when I woke up, I wrote them down phonetically. And later when I met a Portuguese Catholic woman, I asked her to recite all of the Marian prayers in Portuguese so I could try to identify it. And to the best of my ability, I identified it as, O Mary, conceived without sin, pray for us, have recourse to thee. Um, I asked her about five or six other questions. I remember the feeling of standing there, of weighing different questions in my mind. You know, what about this? What about that? That's stupid. I won't ask that. Oh, that's not too bad. I'll ask that. I'll mention the, the better questions now. Some of them were pretty embarrassing. Most of the questions came out of this sense of being overwhelmed by who she was and just wanting to honor her somehow. By the way, I will say, she spoke to me. I mean, I, I, I heard her voice, uh, her answers were spoken answers, but there were also things that just flowed into my mind, a, a kind of um, uh, intellectual vision that came during this experience. And the first experience also, by the way, was intellectual vision. Um, it was just things presented inside my mind. So the fact that she was the Blessed Virgin Mary was something that she never said out loud, but I just knew when I was you know, found myself in her presence. Anyway, so out of this desire to somehow honor her, at one point, it was more of an exclamation than actually a question, but I said, how can it be? How is it possible? How can it be that you're so glorious, that you're so magnificent, that you're so exalted? How can it be? And her response was just to look down at me almost pityingly and shake her head gently. And she said, oh no, you don't understand. You don't understand anything. I'm nothing. I'm a creature. I'm a created thing. He's everything. And then again, out of this desire to somehow honor her appropriately, I asked her what her favorite title for herself was. And her response was, I am the beloved daughter of the Father, mother of the Son, and spouse of the Spirit. 
And then uh, maybe this is the last question and answer I'll mention, but by now I figured out if this was the Blessed Virgin Mary, it had been Christ in that earlier experience, and this is all about Christianity, and I'd better get up to speed pretty quick. And all my life I had heard the expression, the Holy Spirit, and I didn't have any idea what it meant. So I apologize for the way I phrased this, but I didn't know any better. I said to her, what's this business about the Holy Spirit? And her response was just to look upwards with an expression melting with love and say, he's his gaze. A number of years later, when I told this to some seminarian friends of mine, they pointed out that St. Thomas Aquinas had uh, called the Holy Spirit the look of love that passes between the Father and the Son. Now, I will say, when I went to sleep that night before this experience, I had no idea, I had knew virtually nothing about the Blessed Virgin Mary. I had never opened up a New Testament. All I knew about the Blessed Virgin Mary was from Christmas carols, mostly from Silent Night, and that line, round young virgin, I thought referred to her being pregnant, that she was a round young virgin. This was all entirely new to me. The next morning when I woke up, she answered all the questions I had for her. After the questions and answers, she said she had something else she wanted to speak to me about, and she spoke to me for about another 10 or 12 minutes. There's a veil over that part of the experience. I don't have the kind of word-for-word -word memory of it that I have of the first part of the experience. And then the audience was over. I went back to sleep. The next morning when I woke up, I was hopelessly in love with the Blessed Virgin Mary. I knew that I had been Christ in that initial experience. I knew that I wanted nothing other than to be as fully and completely Christian as possible. I didn't know what that meant. I didn't know what the difference was between a Protestant and a Catholic. Uh, there wasn't much I could do other than open the local phone book and find a church to go to, which was a Protestant church. I'll talk about that a little bit later. But anyway, the next morning when I woke up, you know, my first thought when I woke up was, oh boy, I can't wait until I go back to sleep again tonight and see her again. Because I honestly thought that it would happen. Uh, when it didn't happen, I said to myself the next morning, oh well, it's bound to happen at least once a week. Uh, of course, it didn't happen, then at least once a month. By the time I realized it would never happen again, the experience had faded to the point where I could accept the rest of life going on, living another 60 or 70 years without ever seeing her again. But if I had woken up the morning after that experience and known that I would have had to go 70 years stuck on Earth without ever seeing her again, I don't know how I could have faced it. It was like vibrant three-dimensional color versus flat black and white cardboard world. You know, just the, the, the love and the intensity of existence in her presence. So I really think it was a, a great grace that I did not understand that at the time it wouldn't happen again. But anyway. So I started, I, I, I wanted to be as fully Christian as possible. I started going to this Protestant church. As soon as I knew the pastor a little bit, I kind of shyly asked him, what about the Blessed Virgin Mary? And when he answered without the respect that I knew that she deserved, I knew this was no place for me. And the other thing that was happening in those days was I was spending all my free time hanging out at Marian shrines. And in particular, there was a shrine to Our Lady of La Salette, not far from my house. Uh, Our Lady of La Salette was a Marian apparition high in the French Alps. It's, by the way, totally church approved. High in the French Alps in 1846, it was a one-time apparition. The Blessed Virgin Mary appeared to a couple of shepherd children, a little bit like Fatima. And there was a, a model of the original shrine near my house. I used to go there three or four times a week just to walk the grounds and to kind of feel the presence of the Blessed Virgin Mary and commune with her. Then the next winter, I was skiing in France and the skiing was rained out. It rained for a couple of days, so the skiing wasn't very good. So I decided to get in my rental car and drive to the original site of the apparition of La Salette. 
which was high in the French Alps, is at about 11,000 feet, 10, 11,000 feet up. It's way above tree line, just, you know, granite cliffs and huge snow bowls and glaciers. It's about 10 kilometers from the nearest little village, just this incredibly beautiful high mountain uh, setting and with actually a, a large basilica that they built there on the site, just incredibly beautiful. I drove there and don't want to get too bogged down in telling the story there, but that was a very powerful experience. And when I was there, I met a French woman. They seated us at these big tables, you know, all the pilgrims. And when I got back home, she called me up and she said, I think it would be a good idea if you checked out the Carthusians. Now, I don't know how many of you know, have heard of the Carthusians. If you've seen the movie Integrate Silence, that takes place in a Carthusian monastery. The Carthusians are the strictest contemplative order left in the church. They live in strict silence. They live in solitary confinement. They eat one meal a day. They break sleep every night. They never sleep for more than about three and a half hours at a time. They go to bed at 8.30. They get up at about 11.30. They gather in the chapel for matins. They chant psalms for two hours. They go back to sleep for about three hours. And then they get up again for lauds and, and mass and so forth. Very strict, contemplative, penitential life. They're not allowed to speak to each other. They're not even allowed, supposed to make eye contact if they're out of their cells and happen to cross paths with each other and so forth. So she tells me about them, and I say to myself, oh, yeah, this would be a good idea, because I was still dying to find a mystic to talk to who could tell me something about what was happening with me. And when I heard about these guys, I said to myself, well, these guys must be mystics, or else they go crazy with that life. So I, I call up this Carthusian monastery, which is in France, and I ask the monk who answers. I, I, of course, didn't think that, of course, no one's going to talk to me because they don't talk. But anyway, this is one monk answers, and it turns out he's the prior, which is why he could talk. And he answers the phone, and I say, I was interested in visiting. Could I visit and take a retreat there? And he said, oh, no, no, we're strictly cloistered. We don't let anybody in. You know, we, we live in strict isolation and so forth. But then he said, tell me something about yourself. And so I begin to tell him the story, and I can feel he's wavering. So I say, should I send you a letter? Should I write you a letter? He says, oh, yeah, good idea. So I write him a letter, and he immediately writes back, saying, you're welcome any time. What I didn't know was that their one exception to not letting anyone in is that they think it's a potential vocation. So anyway, so I immediately get on a plane to fly there. I'm still anti-Christian and even more anti-Catholic. And I show up at this Carthusian monastery, they give me a cell, and every, I, I, this sounds like a digression, but actually the reason I'm going down this road is because it was really that time at the Carthusian Monastery that showed me the truth of the Catholic Church, per se, and a number of experiences there, which resulted in me aiming directly at the Catholic Church. So that's, you'll see where I, I'm going this, down this road. So anyway, so I'm, I'm in the cell, and the, the prior is coming to me every afternoon for a half an hour to give me spiritual direction to ask if I have any questions. I'm still this, you know, very full of myself, self-righteous Jew, right? So every day I think, well, today, this is the day he's going to come to give me the sales pitch about why I should become Catholic, right? So I embraced him for this, and he shows up, and he talks to me, and he doesn't do it, right? So I say to myself, well, tomorrow he's going to come and give me the sales pitch, and he doesn't. So after about three or four days of this, I can't stand the suspense anymore, and I figure I'll take the bull by the horns. So the next time he comes, I say to him, aren't you going to tell me that I should become Catholic? And he just looks at me and he says, oh, no, no. All I ask of you is that you keep your eyes open and you be honest about, with yourself about what you see. And this so impressed me 
because you see, I would expect, especially coming from a Jewish background, that he'd be trying to sell me or browbeat me or something into, into becoming Catholic. And this was such clear evidence that he, he knew the truth of Catholicism. He knew the truth and the reality of the Holy Spirit. So he knew that all I had to do was keep my eyes open and be honest about what I saw. And basically, God would do the rest. The Holy Spirit would do the rest. And I would find myself knowing that the Catholic Church was the truth. And this totally impressed me. And another thing that happened was I was joining the monks in their prayer in the middle of the night. So I was getting up at 11.30 and joining them in the choir stalls. And so you have all these stalls with all these elderly monks standing up through the middle of the night, you know, chanting these psalms. And I look to my left and I look to my right and they're chanting, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, should I ever forget you? Let the tongue, my tongue cleaved to the roof of my mouth. Oh, Zion, nowhere in the world is this beautiful from you. From you shall come the light that illuminates the whole world and so forth. So I'm looking around myself, saying to myself, these guys are all wannabe Jews. <laughs> and so, which is true. I mean, they were, they, they, obviously they saw themselves as a continuation of Judaism. They were identifying very deeply and very richly with Judaism. And this was the last thing that I expected. I had grown up thinking that, you know, the, the Catholic attitude would be contempt for Jews and Judaism. And instead, there was this tremendous reverence and sense of being the, the heritage of Judaism. I'll digress with another little saint story. But St. Ignatius Loyola, who you all know was the founder of the Jesuits, he was accused of having Jewish blood, which is a big problem in those days because uh, there was a lot of Jewish conversion under government pressure in some sense to Catholicism. So he was accused of having Jewish blood. And when he was accused of this, his response was, well, it's not true, but if it were true, I could imagine no greater honor than being related by blood to our savior. So this basically, I understood at the monastery that that was the genuine Catholic attitude towards Jews and Judaism, which was uh, driven home to me another day. I was working in the orchard. That was my job, was scything the grass in the orchard. So I'm working out there one day when this elderly monk shuffles out to me because since they weren't allowed to talk, they sometimes took advantage of opportunities, you know, to talk when they wouldn't get caught. So he shuffles out to me and he kind of shyly says, do you mind if I ask you a question? And I say, no, go ahead. And he says, well, then if you don't mind, uh, you're not Catholic, are you? Because we noticed you weren't receiving communion. And I said, no, that's right. I'm not Catholic. He said, well, then, if you don't mind, we were all wondering, what are you then? And I said, I'm Jewish. And he said, oh, that's a relief. We were all afraid you were Protestant. <laughs> because, of course, again, they saw, as John Paul II said, they saw the Jews as their elder brothers in the faith, whereas they saw the Protestants as people who had had the faith and rejected the fullness of it when they rejected the Catholic Church. So by the time I came home for the monastery, I didn't have a Carthusian vocation. But anyway, I was very gratefully baptized Epiphany of 1992. I was supposed to wait till the Easter Vigil, of course, but I was, I was pushy, right? And I couldn't wait. I was going back to the Carthusian monastery, and I really wanted to receive communion there. So I said to the priest, if Epiphany was good enough for Jesus to be baptized, it ought to be good enough for me. And he bought that line, so he, he baptized me on Epiphany. Since then, has been, whatever, 21 years. I might have missed communion in 21 days in those 21 years. I didn't miss a day of communion for at least the first five or six years. If I do miss it, it's because I'm traveling or on an airplane or something. And 
really nothing on earth matters except its, its implications for all eternity. And there's no reason to trade something for all eternity for something that doesn't matter for all eternity. And of course, there's consolation and there's joy and there is a subjective pleasure in going to Mass and in receiving communion. There is also what it does to the state of our soul. There's also the consolation it gives Jesus. Um, it's been an hour, so it's, it's, it's time to close. I just want to read some words of another Jewish convert named Charlie Rich. He was a Hasidic Jew. Charlie Rich is one of the Jews in Honey from the Rock. I have two books which have been published by Ignatius Press. Salvation is from the Jews, which is theology, the role of Judaism in salvation history, from Abraham to the Second Coming. And also Honey from the Rock, which is 16 Jewish Catholic witness testimonies, including my own and including Charlie Rich's, which is the Hasidic Jew, who I'm going to read a quote from now. I have, since my baptism and first communion, acquired a happiness which I would not exchange for anything in all the world. It has given to me a peace of mind and a serenity of outlook which I did not think was possible on this earth. It would, in my case, have been in vain to have been born had God not been good enough to extend me the grace to become a member of the mystical body of Christ that the Church of Rome is. Without the life Christ is, there is no life at all. It is for heaven we have been made and for no other earthly good thing. It is to heaven every good and beautiful experience points and has in view. I became a Catholic so that I may in that way be happy, not just for a few years, but forever and ever. I became a Catholic that I may in that way get the grace to one day participate in the joys of the angels and saints in the life to come. One can never come to an end of enumerating the blessings conferred upon one by the grace of being a Catholic. The mercies of the Lord I will sing forever. Can the mercy of God be made more manifest than in the grace extended to us to be members of the only true church? It is being a Catholic that matters and not any other thing the world has to offer, however good and beautiful it may be. The Church of Rome gives us God himself. It does so in all his fullness. A greater gift than God is a human being cannot hope to receive. We receive the gift God himself is when we receive Holy Communion to become more intimately united with God than the Church enables us to be by means of the Holy Sacraments. We must take leave of this life. So it's really just Catholicism 101, right? And I'm reading his words because he did a better job of saying it than I could, but it's certainly uh, my sentiments too. And it's what we all, thank God, benefit from and the greatest gift we can possibly give to anybody else is to share the richness, riches that we have by being Catholic with them. So with that, I'll, I'll close. Let me close with a prayer for the conversion of the Jews. And this is the prayer on the back of one of the prayer cards. This prayer comes from the First Vatican Council because the church didn't used to be so shy about evangelization, including evangelization of the Jews. Uh, before World War II, there were at least a half a dozen religious communities founded to pray for the conversion of the Jews, missionary organizations to evangelize the Jews and so forth. That has pretty much all dried up. But at the First Vatican Council, which was in the 1860s, there was a postulatum which was circulated and approved by all the council fathers and the pope. And postulatum is just Latin for petition. And it was a prayer, it was a formal invitation on the part of the church to the Jews to join the church. Uh, so this prayer is 100% kosher, right? It comes straight from the Vatican Council. And it's an invitation to the Jews to enter the church. So I invite you to take one of the prayer cards 
And if you feel like praying it, all the better. If you feel like silently praying it along with me, all the better. But here it is from the First Vatican Council. The undersigned fathers of the council humbly yet urgently, beseechingly pray that the Holy Ecumenical Council of the Vatican come to the aid of the unfortunate nation of Israel with an entirely paternal invitation. That finally exhausted by a wait no less futile than long, the Israelites hasten to recognize the Messiah, our Savior, Jesus Christ, truly promised to Abraham and announced by Moses, thus completing and crowning, not changing the religion of Moses. The undersigned fathers have the very firm confidence that the Holy Council will have compassion on the Israelites because they are always very dear to God on account of their fathers and because it is from them that the Christ was born according to the flesh. Would that they then speedily acclaim the Christ, saying, Hosanna to the son of David, blessed be he who comes in the name of the Lord. Would that they hurl themselves into the arms of the Immaculate Virgin Mary, even now their sister according to the flesh, who wishes likewise to be their mother according to grace, as she is ours. Amen. Amen and thank you. We hope you were inspired by this podcast and we encourage you to share it on social media and warmly invite you to distribute our free Catholic scapulars, medals, books, and booklets to your family, friends, parish, and social groups. Visit us online at catholiccity.com for more information. The real work of the Mary Foundation is accomplished by people just like you. There are three ways to help. First, please pray for everyone who hears, reads, or wears our materials. Second, share them with everyone you know, family, friends, fellow parishioners, and the people you work with. Only you can reach them. Finally, please help us financially. It seems impossible, but we don't do traditional fundraising here at the Mary Foundation. We rely on your generosity and God's providence. By the way, if you, your parish, or your Catholic group would like to distribute our materials by the dozens, hundreds, or even thousands, all we ask for is help covering our materials costs. So please visit us online for suggested donations. For our Canadian friends and those outside the United States, only online requests are accepted, so please refer to the special shipping rates listed on our website. Thanks for listening, and we're looking forward to working with you. May God bless you always. And now, here's a short preview of our Rosary and Divine Mercy Chaplet, the most popular rosary according in the history of the world. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. For an increase in the virtues of faith, hope, and charity. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit. As it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. All rights are reserved, and any duplication without permission is prohibited.